Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Catherine Rowland. I'm the author of the forthcoming book, The Pleasure Gap, American Women and the Unfinished Sexual Revolution, which will be released by Seal Press on February 4th. I'm also the former publisher of Guernica Magazine, and I am a journalist and public health researcher based in Brooklyn, New York. Catherine, I had the chance to read your book, and it was wonderful. I don't know if you want to give us a brief summary of it before we get into it. Sure. The book is the fruit of five years of research and kind of being troubled over allegations around the nature of women's desire or the sort of naturalizing of the lack of women's desire and the dimmed dimensions of female sexuality. And I have a background in medical anthropology. So how we construct ideas around what is right and normal, good and healthy have always been really interesting to me, particularly where it concerns women and their bodies and their autonomy. And so for this book, I wanted to look at the non-biological dimensions of female sexuality. And I, over the course of about five years, talked to give or take 120 women and dozens of sexual health researchers of all stripes, scientists, pharmacologists, sex workers, body workers, to look at the different factors constraining women's full expression of their sexuality. And I honed in on a handful of cultural factors. Among them are the really sorry state of science surrounding female sexuality and the very biased messages that we as women really receive, or I should say that men and women receive out of the gate in terms of what is natural and what is healthy. I wanted to look at the lasting resonance of trauma across women's lives that lingers in both mind and body. I was interested in the really amped up mediated messages that we see more and more these days as sex continues to totally saturate our culture and yet does so in the absence of any kind of factual information oftentimes. And I was interested in the really extreme pressures that women experience to maintain a lusty, dynamic sexual life over the course of long-term monogamy, even though marriage is on the decline and we see more and more different kinds of partnerships and sexual arrangements coming to the forefront of our social interactions. For a number of women, heterosexual marriage, meaning long-term monogamous coupling, remains a holy grail. And women continue to really beat themselves up for not maintaining sort of impossible sexual standards over the course of those relationships. So I was interested in seeing how those factors contour desire. And then in the second half of the book, I follow a number of women and different trends in the marketplace, if you will, and looking at how women are seeking to, are told they should be revitalizing their sexual lives and reclaiming their erotic selfhood. In broad strokes, I come to know grand conclusion. I wish I could join you guys this morning and say, if you just do X, Y, and Z, you will come away with 
a wonderful, soaring, gratifying sexuality, but that is frankly not the case. And I think were I to offer a solution for how we cross the pleasure gap and help women really reclaim their erotic identity and true capacity, it would be to sort of shut off all the outside noise and the proliferation of advice on offer and help women learn to listen to the wisdom of their own bodies, which has really been silenced pretty aggressively over the past decades. So like a you do you kind of thing. Absolutely. You do you kind of thing into help women learn that this numbed out state that so many live with as a completely naturalized way of being is not at all natural, even though it's completely understandable given the just bombardment of sensory input that we live with in our modern, often urban lives. This is kind of an interesting dialectic of listen to your body, but also if your body's numb, maybe that is an outside influence. An outside influence, or it's that's a good indicator. It's a good starting place to sort of look at why we're numb to begin with. And maybe that's actually a healthy response to stressful, objectifying, um, unfortunate circumstance. I really liked your book because I like the um, holistic approach that you took to it. I started reading stuff about this a while ago. There was a documentary that came out almost 10 years ago called Orgasm Inc. And it, it was about the idea of a female Viagra. And that was the first time I heard about, I think her name is uh, Dr. Lenore Typher from the New View Coalition. And just the idea that like, we're not going to fix problems with a pill that may not have started biologically. It was very strange to me the way that some of these pharmaceutical companies tried to frame this as a feminist issue, that we don't have access to these drugs that when they came out didn't seem to work for many women. Some people in your book said they were, but it wasn't a lot of people. I was curious what you thought of, and you did touch on this in the book, but it was just reminding me of something that you just said now. There was an article that came out last year, I think, that talked about, is mindfulness meditation the female Viagra? Is that a strange way to phrase it? I think it's a strange way to phrase it in that it underscores our continued fixation with finding this magic bullet pill fix. I'll go back to talking about mindfulness in one second, but if I could just continue to unpack the female Viagra piece, the continued fixation with finding a female Viagra is fascinating in large part because it grew out of the market success with male Viagra. And there, you know, these issues that the pharmaceutical industry has been trying to quote unquote fix around female sexuality had been documented for more than two decades prior to the first clinical trials on female Viagra, where, you know, within days of Viagra's FDA approval, people were already prescribing it off label to women saying that with absolutely no scientific evidence as to why it should be effective because they wanted to see if increasing blood flow to the genitals would somehow ignite female desire. But desire has nothing to do with blood flow, because in fact, what we see and what my book addresses is that there is a pronounced difference between what takes place in the mind, which is typically the realm of desire, of imagination, of kind of sexual liberation and what's taking place in terms of arousal, which exists in the genitals. And there is often a large bridge to cross between the two. And that's what pharma has never wrapped its head around. It's just continued to 
iterate different causal pathways for women's low desire. It's either women have low testosterone. I mean, of course they do. They're women. Or they have problems with genital blood flow or has been put forward most recently have kind of a propensity towards neurologic imbalance, which disposes them to desire disorders. Um, But back to mindfulness, mindfulness, I think what my research has shown and what the scholarship has shown has really, I think, come forward as a new, not the gold standard, but a new gold standard in terms of therapeutic treatment of women's sexual health problems. But that is a slow going learned process where you learn to dismantle the jabbering voices that commonly derail your ability to be present in a particular moment. Um, And it's sort of the opposite of what we're trying to achieve with a Viagra, which is you pop a pill and circumstances vanish and suddenly you're available for sex, whereas mindfulness requires you to kind of make peace with circumstances and to understand your circumstances before being able to fully feel yourself as present in your body and tap into the existing streams of arousal that are already running and off which desire feeds. I'm really like glad that you kind of brought this up because you talk about this a little bit in your book about how the the DSM kind of just medicalizes sexual desire. And I talk about this in the class that I teach as well about the concept of medicalization of sexuality. And it really brings to mind, I do a lot of my research around trans and gender nonconforming people. And one of my favorite little side hobbies in that is like DSM history of sexual differences and definitions of sexuality, sex, gender, and all of these things. And it prompted me to to look into my DSM-5, the current one, to see what's left over from that. And it is very sad. <laughs> what is in DSM-5 is uh, in, under sexual dysfunctions, female orgasmic disorder, female sexual interest slash arousal disorder. And, you know, I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, and this is a psychiatry thing. In particular, what is frustrating about it is there is no biological correlate for it to be in a psychiatric manual. And I think that that's really interesting, you know, and it it made me review it in the DSM to see, you know, associated features, uh, supporting diagnosis, development and course, you know, there's not a lot of biology in here. And yet it's made to be, or it's very binary sexualized (laughs) and gendered at the same time, which is a bit confounding. I'm just really struck by how we don't teach this particular part in our psychopathology classes. And why is it in there? (laughs) I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, if you want to take a really riveting tour of moral values in this country, just walk (laughs) through a couple decades of the DSM. I mean, there's, (laughs) there's nothing like those pages to really demonstrate what we believe men and women should look and act like, and, you know, not to mention our 
throbbing faith in this idea that there is something quantifiable as man, gunk, woman, gunk, and in our insistence on the binary. I think there's like a 101 level understanding. There's sexuality, there's desire, there's pleasure, there's orgasm, mm. and then kind of realizing that it's not all so simple that your book was a real jumping off point for me to dive into ways that my own field does a really bad job with this and tries to really oversimplify something. Even in just like reading about female orgasmic disorder, it's like reported prevalence rates for female orgasmic problems in women vary widely from 10% to 42%, depending on multiple factors. However, these estimates like, you know, <laughs> and then the variation in how symptoms are assessed also influence prevalence rates. And it's like, how can you say that this is a unified disorder? <laughs> when I was working with my publisher to try and craft copy for the flap jacket, just honing in on numbers, you know, they wanted a quantifiable figure. So how many women are dealing with this? And so I was like, well, the issue is that, is there a this that women are even dealing with? But as you were speaking, it made me realize that I think part of the issue here is, I don't want to point fingers at, at medicine or psychology by any means, I think this is a broader cultural phenomenon, but it's the erasure of history in our understanding of these problems that we see time and again. And that kind of got me really excited about the concept of desire around the time that they were pushing out Flibanserin, which is now available as Addy was that for so much of the 20th century, women weren't supposed to have desire. To be libidinous was to be perverted. It was to be aberrant. It was to be unhealthy. And then, you know, between the sexual revolution and the women's movement and Stonewall, suddenly women were supposed to be supercharged with libido, but it still had to be directed in very particular ways and sort of how we move from the one where frigidity was assumed to blanket society, particularly, you know, white middle class married women, everyone else gets a pass because this is the only category that we have the cultural moral investment in. And then moving to a place where suddenly if women are disinterested in sex, this is a form of pathology without questioning whether are women really disinterested in sex or are they simply expressing non-interest in the terms of sex that they're supposed to continue to have and yet don't want to and clearly do not want to, as is evidenced by the divorce rate, <laughs> the rates of non-marriage, of choosing to stay single and of choosing non-heteronormative life courses, which is increasingly an avenue that women and, and men are exploring. Some of this work, without wanting to be too conspiratorial about it, props up the idea of married monogamous sexuality as the holy grail of female sexual expression that sort of unites this trinity of like partnership, reproductive potential, and male sexual appetite and female receptivity to that. Yeah, it, it almost seems like we decided that as a culture, we're going to flip a switch where women go from completely asexual to female bodies with male sexualities and, and haven't really made this transition 
into what does it mean to have a, a female sexual desire? I, I think that's just it. It's, as you said, sort of female bodies with a male sexuality, particularly for young women. I think there's a pressure now to be sexually game, to enjoy sex, to crave sex, to participate casually in sex. And yet there's still very little attention to female pleasure in that context, let alone to female desire. Women are supposed to I think, say yes more, but we don't know that they're saying yes because they really crave that physicality, they crave that form of connection, or is the cultural pressure so great that they feel inclined to say yes? And I think that takes us into kind of tricky territory because while observing that women aren't necessarily having sex for pleasure, you at the same time don't want to undermine the physical drive that women do have and feel more comfortable in expressing. But I think we're in the midst of navigating a very fraught moment of cultural transition around understanding why it is that we have sex, what are the terms in which we're negotiating sex, and you know what should the nature of consent be in these new contexts. I feel like it's kind of captured well in my students on the exam where we went over uh, sexuality. And this is, you know, anecdata, but whatever. <laughs> um, they all knew which population had the fewest orgasms, uh, mm -hmm. which were heterosexual women. But then there was a low correct answer rate on the question of what increases frequency of orgasm for women. Mm. So everyone knows that women are not experiencing pleasure, but no one could remember how to get women to experience pleasure. <laughs> what is the textbook answer there? I'm not sure. Um, uh, let me pull up the, the test <laughs> question because I, I want to make sure that I um, represent it properly. Uh, okay. So the question is, each of the following predicts orgasm rates among women except blank. A, receiving oral sex. B, frequency of sexual encounters. C, the duration of sexual encounters. Or E, knowledge of the location of their clitoris. Oh, man, people mess that question up. Yep. I thought this one was fairly obvious. <laughs> <laughs> the correct answer is that the frequency of sexual encounters is the, the answer that doesn't affect orgasm rates among women. Again, also using really binary language. Anyway... That's that. <laughs> I think that almost kind of sums up what we're talking about today, because you're trying to get your your students to understand the idea of quality over quantity. Yes. That might be, you know, maybe that our culture has one message and maybe what actually works for people is, is a completely different one. No, we're so obsessed with sexual quantity. I mean, you look at the media reports and... The focus is not on the fact that vast numbers of women are distressed and dissatisfied with their sexual lives, that men, too, are distressed and dissatisfied with their sexual lives because they're also sort of frequently relegated to empty, meaningless encounters of, you know, three to five minute duration. Like no one is really getting a lot out of that. But you would think that 
this dip in the amount of sex that we're having is is what the public health crisis is. I mean, just these the association that less sex makes you depressed and obese and it raises your risk for coronary disease and it's going to make your hair and teeth fall out and all these terrible ramifications coming from reduced sexual quantity without any attention to what constitutes sexual quality. And so much of the really booming market around getting back in the mood focuses on increasing quantity again without bolstering quality. And it's kind of like, just make yourself do it and talk about doing it and then make yourself do it again. And what doing it frequently means there is not oral sex. It's not masturbatory exploration. It's not partnered exploration. It's not really delving into the depths of your imagination, which is where your desire resides to figure out what is it that I really want from sex. It returns this idea of penetration. It's like, go back and have penis in vagina sex more frequently. (laughs) And it's, you know, no wonder under the sun that that kind of advice is leaving so many deeply unfulfilled because, you know, as we've touched upon penetrative sex is kind of bafflingly ill-suited to female pleasure. I love the Sherry Height quote about penis and vagina sex being like a Rube Goldberg um, method for solving <laughs> female pleasure. <laughs> oh um, my goodness. Yeah, quoting Terry Height will get you like shunned in psychology circles. Oh, <laughs> but I love I love Sherry Height. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I always get confused by those media reports too though, because when they have those surveys like and they ask, you know, usually cis het people like did the woman have an orgasm last time you had sex? And to me, I'm not sure if when they asked that, either when they asked or the way people understood, was that question asking the entire evening or just during intercourse? And I don't know. It's not clear to me what they were asking. And I don't know if it was clear to the people they were asking what they were asking. So yeah, news surveys are not known for their psychometric qualities and validity. I'm very pedantic, as we've discussed on this, on this podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a nerd. It's I can't okay. help it. No, I understand. <laughs> Hopefully our listeners are, are listening for the pedantry. <laughs> we had a sex educator on the show from the Our Whole Lives program. She was talking about how they're introducing a new curriculum for older adults. Like they have one for like children, for teenagers, for young adults, like a lifetime one. Then they're introducing one for um, older people, like fifties or sixties and, and, and beyond. And we thought that that was, that was really fascinating. And I think something that your book made me think about is the way that we get sex ed in, in school. If we have any, it's just like, this is puberty and this is it, you know, for life. It doesn't talk about how, the way that a person's mind and body might change throughout their lifetime is going to change their relationship with their own sexuality. Totally. Some of some of what really s- stood out to me when I was talking with practitioners around mindfulness therapy in particular was having it serve as a corrective to that view that 
you kind of develop into a sexual being and then boom, like that's it. You have this kind of drive, you have this kind of desire, you have this kind of appetite. And I talked to therapists who told me that what they often were dealing with were women coming to their offices and mourning the fact that their sexuality didn't look like it looked before they had kids or before they were married three times or before they were kind of steamrolled by the quotidian details of modern life. And what they were suggesting is sort of learning to be gracious with those ebbs and flows in the changing terrain of your own sexuality over time. Like it's going to completely change because sex and sexuality with it are contextual. They're based on the messages we're receiving, the cues we're picking up, and the changing facet of our desire. With all of our life circumstances, our desire is reconstituted, um, and we have so little tolerance for that. We think about it as just setting a propeller in motion, and it'll just whir indefinitely until it kind of winds down and, and peters out. Anecdotally, one of my dearest friends passed away recently, but he was approaching 80, and I kept on wanting to get at some idea of diminished sexuality with him. Like, you know, he was still kind of a randy old man. And I was like, doesn't it just taper off over time? And he was like, no, I'm as, I'm as bothered by this as, as I ever was, but it doesn't, <laughs> it just doesn't fit the mold that we're commonly given of sexuality being like a bell curve mm. where it sort of rises and then gently declines and, goes, you know, gently into the night and doesn't bother us anymore with its pesky needs. And certainly older women that I spoke to really railed against how desexualized they were in their old age, in their, I shouldn't say old age, in their maturity, and how the common narrative there, though that is shifting a little bit, thanks to the penetration of Viagra into older populations and new expectations for sex into your graying years. Um, but women having changing sexual needs, but more we're still having a robust sexuality into their 60s and 70s and wanting to explore what that means, but not necessarily in a like climb aboard penetrative manner. Yeah, I think also there's like the medicalization of when people do follow the downturn of that bell curve, which does tend to occur on average. But again, on average is not the same as everyone. <laughs> the concept of Viagra, if a man cannot get physically aroused on command, he has a disorder, mm -hmm. you know, rather than sexuality is complex and sometimes... Our bodies aren't matching how we're feeling, and sometimes that's interesting and information about our bodies, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just like you're tired. You had a long day at work. Your body doesn't want to do it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but, like, this over-medicalization, which comes with what are our expectations of certain types of sexualities and what is disordered and what's not. And, and that was like a real takeaway from your book that I had, even if it wasn't necessarily supposed to apply to men as well. 
Yeah, thank you. I think I think sort of the male story was like the quiet subtext to the book, because if we're talking about an absence of female deserving entitlement and recognition, I think we are at the same time talking about an over magnification of male entitlement to orgasm and release and to pleasure. I think it's interesting, like successful use of Viagra is thought to culminate in ejaculation. And then if we, you know, one of the, one of the parameters for looking at how we measure and evaluate Viagra was successful entry of the penis. So it's supposed to be a successful entry of the vagina. So you're supposed to have this strong virile penis that is supposed to obtain its release, but none of the drugs sort of ever under consideration for women are about orgasm or pleasure. Pleasure has nothing to do with it. It's simply how do we render women more receptive to sex? And it sounds really dystopian to frame it in those terms, but I think there is a dimension of that because shouldn't our interventions be to um, the questions in your exam around how to administer oral sex, how do you locate the different details of your own anatomy and appreciate their own unique contours, and how do we really change the terms of society at large so that we feel safe, comfortable, secure, and entitled in expressing the wishes of our own body, and even if those wishes are a wish to not be touched. Yeah, and so... I'm going to move into uh, one of your chapters. And before I, I do, I want to kind of issue a, a trigger warning for listeners for talking about sexual trauma and assault. So uh, if this is a topic that is really uncomfortable for you to listen to and you're listening to this podcast on the train and maybe you don't want to go through that where you are right now, put it on pause for now and come back to it when you're in private. With that being said, you brought up kind of unpleasant sexual experiences and not wanting to be touched. And I really, you know, in going back and forth between your book and my DSM, like with my big confused face, <laughs> what was really upsetting about female sexual interest slash arousal disorder under differential diagnosis was not PTSD. I was really upset about that because it's, Anecdotally, for my friends who have experienced sexual trauma, one of the biggest hurdles is being sexual again mm -hmm. uh, and having sexual desire. Karen, can you just explain differential diagnosis for people who might not know? <laughs> Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, so differential diagnosis is when somebody presents to you with, hi, doctor, I'm having this, this and this problem. You might say, oh, this seems to fit the picture of one diagnosis, but differential diagnosis is these are the diagnoses that seem similar, and you want to make sure that you differentiate between the two. So a differential diagnosis for PTSD under female sexual interest slash arousal disorder would be this person may have symptoms that look like female uh, sexual interest slash arousal disorder but you want to make sure that it's not symptoms of PTSD. That's what I wanted to see. And that's what's not there, which is really disturbing to me. One therapist I spoke to who really 
switched on the lights for me was Wendy Maltz. And she was a real pioneer in terms of looking at the long-term sexual ramifications of sexual assault. It was so striking to me that that wasn't a fundamental part of the conversation until her um, really significant contributions to the field. But I had this total aha moment when we were speaking and she pointed out that when you look at rates of sexual desire disorders now called sexual interest and arousal disorders, they kind of map rates of sexual trauma and assault. And she was like, why aren't we putting these pieces together? It's sort of put aside as it's like an addendum to the conversation. You know, we're going to run through this whole other list of potentially contributing factors and then say, oh, maybe the, you know, shocking prevalence of coercion and molestation in this country are what contributes to this. And yet that remains a conversation that we're very reluctant to engage in. And I suppose those terms are changing a bit um, now that we're in the midst of this overdue Me Too dialogue. But even still, I think the numbers currently in circulation vastly underestimate the reality of women's lives, whether that is direct trauma and assault or the like wounds of accumulated microaggressions that so many have to work their way through on a daily basis. I'm also curious about ways, especially with veterans that we're seeing more recently, where the majority of cases of PTSD come from military sexual trauma rather than combat trauma. I'm curious if we're going to see a shift for both men and women, if we're going to see a shift in that for, for men as well, where a lot of men with military sexual trauma or other forms of sexual trauma may have difficulties regarding their sexuality. But yeah, I think the whole thing is is quite interesting. Yes. I mean, the discussion around male trauma is really what opened the doors for our understanding of trauma among among female populations and the work of Judith Herman and later the work of Bessel van der Kolk. And so I, I imagine that that dialogue will continue to evolve and, and change the scope of, of how we understand the lasting resonance of, of these wounds and and what it means in terms of of treatment and prevention. What's interesting is what does our picture of treatment look like and what are we treating and what are our treatment goals here? Like, is the goal to have sex more often, like you were talking about, or is the goal to have sex that's more pleasurable mm-hmm. whenever you are capable of it? Mm-hmm. To speak about treatment feels premature when we haven't addressed primary interventions in terms of education and mm-hmm. prevention. How are we changing the ways in which we assume it's okay to interact with one another? that this isn't commonplace. I mean, these numbers are so high that they're practically naturalized. We just assume that this is an unfortunate facet of life, but we're, we're dealing with numbers that are nothing short of epidemic and that we're not committing the full power of our funding and policy and social resources to dealing with this as the public health crisis that it is is shocking and dismaying and just speaks volumes to what we think about in terms of 
the worth of affected men and women. I, I get so disappointed in the way that, that we as a, a collective society really undervalue preventive interventions. And I, I get frustrated by my, my own personal limited role in a lot of things where I'm in a, a neuropsych heavy program and we're learning about prevalence rates for Alzheimer's dementia, which you would think is purely biological, not at all related to environmental factors. But one of the biggest predictors is socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, okay, well, why would that be if it were biological? And it's just like, oh, there are all these things that we could do to reduce the stress on our whole society, mm -hmm. which would improve our health outcomes in the long term. Almost every illness has... SES involved somewhere. And if you subscribe to a diathesis stress model, the stress side of that fits. I feel like um, that scene in, in Clue where she's just like, flames on the side of my face. <laughs> like, it, it kills me. Like, we don't care. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's very disturbing that we don't care about this interpersonal violence because it's violence that we typically see as an expression of power that we're comfortable with. Right. It's just the extreme version of the power that we've already normalized, the extreme of the power differential that we're comfortable with. Yeah. So this is just always so interesting to me. Maybe I should have gone into psych epi instead of psychology, <laughs> but um, or instead of clinical. It kills me. <laughs> That reminds me of this other book I read last year called uh, Doing Harm by Maya Duesenberry. And she was talking about how a lot of times when we, quote unquote, discover a new illness like anorexia or fibromyalgia, it's first discovered to be a rich white woman's disease. But the reason that the first people who get diagnosed are rich white women are because those are the people who have the resources to get that diagnosis. And then we find out that the people who are more affected by it might not be rich white women, but they didn't have the ability to go to the doctor until they got some answers. And keeping that model in mind is, you know, just head exploding, like you said, the flames, you know? Yeah, so I, I feel like your book is a really great dive into this. I got a lot out of it as a professional, and I feel like it's also really useful for, the wording was really like readable for, for people who wouldn't be, so I, I I think that it's a really fantastic deep dive into something that we overlook. We went into the dark a little bit, but I'm wondering, um, does your your book or your experience have the where do we go from here uh, and how do we kind of recover either personally or as a society? Yeah, I think in looking at the sort of market for recovery, I have to say I uncovered equal parts kind of garbage and glowing hope. When I reflect on the garbage, I think it's symptomatic <laughs> of how much we shroud sexuality and shame and mystery. And it's almost the way like fungus grows in the dark because we give so little leeway to understanding facts and just straight science, science divorced from a faulty moral context, 
it allows all of these false notions to proliferate and pair that with the level playing field of the internet. So when I go online to search, how do I boost my orgasm? How do I have more sex, I'm equally likely to come across a peer-reviewed work of scholarship as I am to come across a workshop on like a three-day squirting intensive. And so how do I, as a consumer, sort of ill-equipped likely with the tools to see the difference there, navigate that world? And so I think that's a pretty formidable background to be up against. Looking more optimistically, I did encounter a number of professionals, oftentimes sort of fringe professionals, who I thought were doing really phenomenal work in terms of healing. And one body that was really quite moving to me that I was frankly kind of reluctant to wade into initially were the sexological body workers. It's also known as sexual somatic therapy, but it's essentially physical therapy that doesn't subscribe to the donut model of healing. So it includes the genitals in terms of physical touch and healing. Um, I'm sorry, what is the donut model of healing? (laughs) The donut model is if I'm a woman, like if I break my arm and I go to the doctor, the doctor looks at my arm and it's like, okay, your arm is broken. But if I go in and say, when I have sex, I feel nothing or I feel pain. No one is looking at my labia. No one is looking at my vagina. Mm. No one's looking at my clitoris. They're instead saying like, have a glass of wine, take a nice bath. Like here's a prescription for an antidepressant or for an anxiolytic. And an antidepressant to increase sexual pleasure. Okay. (laughs) It's that, I mean, that is sort of an ironic sidebar that I heard time and again in talking to women. They would start with a conversation with their GYN and say, I am not enjoying sex or my desire has tanked or something is sort of off around my sexuality. And they'd get a recommendation to talk to a therapist and the therapist would give them an antidepressant, which of course nosedives their libido. And then they're really starting from a bad place. But this is a very common cycle that, that we see all over the place. So much so that some therapists are dealing with, well, how do we bolster desire while taking into account the therapeutic effects of the antidepressant? So you're dealing with um, like a buffet of pharma. But anyway, back back to the donut model. (laughs) Sexological body workers essentially administer therapeutic massage that is inclusive of the genitals with the aim to reawaken sensation, to educate clients, and to allow for circumstances of comfort where perhaps none existed before. It's frequently very beneficial for uh, survivors of trauma and abuse who feel really deeply uneasy around genital touch or stimulation. It's also a wonderful tool for learning boundary setting. So having people learn to listen to the rhythm of their own bodies and say like, no, I don't want to be touched there or I'd rather be touched thusly. It tends to be a slowly evolving um, relationship between the practitioner and the client, sometimes it never involves genital touch. Sometimes it is not sexual, but it sort of allows for the whole dynamic sexual range of the individual in thinking about therapeutic healing, holistic healing. 
And one element that was most striking to me is that I talked to a number of people who were licensed therapists or counselors who gave up their licensure in order to engage in this kind of touch-based therapy because they believed that this was really the missing piece in healing, that their licensure wouldn't allow them to express or explore. And obviously, there are a number of ethical challenges raised by this form of healing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it really does, in some respects, occupy a gray zone between sex work and physical therapy. And because it's largely illegal, it's difficult to regulate and oversee. So there's potential for violation there. Without wanting to be too much of like a booster for the practice, I was deeply impressed by the ethical standards that the practitioners I spoke to upheld. So this might also be like another case for the legalization or decriminalization of sex work, uh, because there could be a licensing body that manages ethical difficulties, because I, I do really imagine that this also equally opens up the door for predation. Totally, totally. Yeah. And without some sort of regulating body, you don't know what you're getting. Right. And when the idea is healing and someone's coming to you from a very vulnerable position, you certainly don't want to run the risk of further violation. Right. Fascinating stuff. That's so cool. Maybe I should drop out of my program and do that instead. (laughs) (laughs) Your book also had the example of someone who kind of almost went the opposite way, who was a dominatrix, and now she's a motivational public speaker. That chapter was fascinating also. So if you're listening, read this book. It's really good. Another place where I kind of find it, I listened to a podcast called Why Are People Into That by Mm. Tina Horn, Mm. uh, who's, you know, a really famous sex educator the conversations around pleasure, identity, and like the complexities of sexuality for an individual, I think are really well represented in this kind of kink conversation, which I don't think is inherent to kink, but I think is inherent for Tina Horn (laughs) as a sex educator. And I think it's really fascinating stuff, even if it's not what you're into, particularly if it's not what you're into, because it's called, why are people into that? (laughs) And I think that that was like a really great way that I've been kind of exploring, like what does sexuality mean? Is there somewhere where you kind of get that explorative information? I mean, for the past five years, I've just been having open-minded conversations with everyone under the sun and following the trails of, of my own curiosity. I wish I could say that, that I had a repository of, of information um, that was my go-to, but I, I will just say that I read voraciously and I just consume probably in the way that we're all trained to these days in our media culture. I overconsume. Are you um, super duper excited for the new uh, Goop show on Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's a really great place to get information about vaginas, <laughs> some yoni eggs. <laughs> but at the same time, I hate laughing about it because if that is where people like feel a connection, I don't want to laugh about that. Like that's equally valid. It's just potentially not medically sanitary. <laughs> right. Just don't don't get an infection. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? I have a personal website at katherineroland.com. It's R-O-W-L-A-N-D. 
And that is the place to look for any upcoming speaking events and for my latest writings. And are you on social media? I am at KHN Roland. That's R-O-W-L-A-N-D. That's where you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. Thank you so much. Thanks. This was a really great time. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.